Are you ready to open your mind and your heart? Welcome to the Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, with your host, Lauren N. Nile. We can mature beyond today's prejudice and xenophobia. We can save our beautiful planet. The keys are self-awareness, awareness of others, and most important, love. Now, here's Lauren. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. So, uh, we, this show, as you know, is about all of the many, many things that we need to learn, that we need to know, that we need to understand, first of all. Um, and then, after having acquired knowledge and information and understanding, it's about all of the things that we need to do as a species, to mature, to grow, to grow up, and to unite as the single human family that we are. You know, when I look at, when I respond to, when I, when I listen to anyone, any of my fellow human beings, I see a cousin there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I see someone who on some level is related to me, but also just another person on this planet who was born just as I was without any control over what body they came into, what family they were born into. And a person who is, for that reason, regardless of their disability or their sex or their race or their religion, because none of those things were choices for any of us. We, we find ourselves in these bodies, you know, as we mature from infancy. For that reason, because they are a human being, they are deserving of my total respect and dignity. And so I see them as just another person like me, who unless they have given me reason not to, I give my full respect to. I consider as my full equal. So this show, as you know, is about all of the things that we need to, on a global level, on a societal level, learn all the things we need to know and then all the things we need to do so that a critical mass of us as human beings can begin to relate to others in that way. Well, today's show, the 10th show uh, in this series, is really about our need to understand Uh, what I uh, call the government's attempts to help us grow, to help us move beyond the past. You see, I cannot count how many times in my nearly 28 years of training I've heard the following questions. Why do we have Black History Month and Women's History Month and Hispanic Heritage Month and Hispanic American Heritage Month and Native American Heritage Month and all of these other months for all these different groups? And why don't European Americans have a month? Why isn't there an Irish American History Month or an Italian American Heritage Month? Isn't it racist to have a month for everybody but white people? And what about affirmative action? Isn't that just reverse discrimination against white people? And how about reparations for blacks and Native Americans and all these other different groups? There were a lot of poor white people too, so how is that fair? Well, my friends, I believe that those are logical questions. 
they're, they're logical questions, and I, I think they're fair questions, honestly. I, I don't think it makes a person racist to ask those questions. Those are questions that are rational, reasonable questions, I believe. But there are questions, the answers to which most of us don't know. We simply don't have the information. We don't have the knowledge. And because the answers are, for the most part, unknown, uh, there is, I believe, at least among some European Americans, a feeling of unfairness about those things, uh, a feeling that, you know, different groups, uh, different uh, groups of color, women, etc., are receiving special treatment. Um, there is a feeling among some, I believe, that the country is trying to make up to all of these different groups for what happened to their ancestors, you know. And I do believe that it's important for us to, to understand what those uh, attempts, societal attempts, governmental attempts, affirmative action, um, reparations, all of the different heritage months. I do think it's important for us to understand what they are about and why they exist. I think it's a really important piece, at least for Americans. It's an important piece of that puzzle uh, that we must uh, work on in order for us to understand and appreciate each other as true human beings without the feeling that there's a lot of unfairness and a lot of discrimination now against the majority and all of that. Well, it's important for us to understand uh, the reason for and the importance of those social attempts to right the past. Now, we can't change the past I mean, we all know that. There's no such thing as time travel, as, as far as we know at this point. We can't go back to the past and change it. We can't change it from our present vantage point. Tragically, our past in the United States regarding, you know, our history of treating all human beings equally, with equal respect and with equal dignity, is abysmal. It's abhorrent. And equally as tragically, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Again, we can't, we can't engage in time travel. We can't go back to the past and correct it. For all of the many, many millions of people who were denied their freedom, for those who were robbed of the opportunity to reach their potential as human beings because of their disability or their race or their sex or their sexual orientation, their gender identity, their, their religion, their gender expression, etc. For all of those millions of people who are denied their freedom and robbed of their opportunity to reach their potential as human beings, on those bases, the well-known legal maxim, justice delayed is justice denied, is the tragic reality. Those people are gone now, and they'll never receive justice. So the steps, uh, the actions that our government and the governments of many other countries, thankfully, have taken over the past roughly half century or so to address the isms, you know, the the steps that our our country has taken to address racism and sexism and heterosexism and anti-Semitism and ageism, etc., are aimed not at the past, but rather at the present-day effects, in other words, the still existing effects of our past. 
let me say that again, all of those steps that the government has taken, you know, affirmative action, uh, reparations for certain groups, they're, they're meant to address the lingering, still existing, present day impact of our past. Not meant to address the past, can't do that. Now, I certainly believe that, well, I have three thoughts actually about this. One, I think it's the right thing to do, just morally, uh, just ethically. I think it's the right thing to do because the people who are suffering the present day effects of that past are innocent. They're innocent. They didn't do anything but happen to be born into the group of people whose ancestors suffered a horrible, tragic past, whether it's Native Americans or African Americans or Asian Americans or Hispanic Americans, people with disabilities, the LGBT community, they just happen to have been born into uh, a group of people who are suffering the present-day impact of our tragic history. You know, we're innocent. (laughs) Now, uh, what, what I've heard on occasion from some people Uh, from some European Americans is, and I I understand the sentiment, what I've heard is, but I'm innocent too, you know, I didn't ask to be born white just as you didn't ask to be born black, I I didn't do any of that stuff, I've never discriminated against anybody, I've never owned slaves, etc. I hear that, it's a valid point. My response though, and my, my thought about that is that Absolutely, I hear you. You are as innocent as I am with regard to this whole history. It happened before either of us was born. We were both born into this this insane system of discrimination and harassment against people based upon their their identity. So yeah, no, there, there's no blame there for anybody alive today. But the fact is that I'm living the, as a person of color or as a woman or as a, maybe if I were disabled, a disabled person, an LGBT person, I'm living the present day disadvantages of that past, you see, and you're living the advantages, if you will, the unearned privileges of that past. I was having dinner with some friends, uh, oh, I don't know, this was maybe, oh, probably close to a year ago. And I'm in my mid-60s. They are a bit older than I am. They're either in, they're probably in their late 60s, I would say. They're European-American. And one of my friends, dear, dear friends, whom I, whom I uh, absolutely uh, love and admire, one uh, was talking about her father, um, who was a physician, and the other was talking about her mother, who was a flight attendant, actually, uh, and... Uh, they were talking about, one was talking about her mother's sorority and the fact that her mother went down to Florida with her sorority sisters uh, for spring break. And I thought, wow, history is right here in this room with us. My friends really probably aren't really aware to the extent that I am of the fact that my family's history is so different, you know, based on the history. Um, my, my my grandparents' generation, the women basically worked in the New Orleans hotels uh, as maids. The men, if they could get on the riverfront, worked on the riverfront. Um, 
That was pretty much the only opportunities available to them. And my parents' generation, my father was a postman, a, a mailman of 35 years. Uh, my mother was a secretary. We now call it administrative assistant, but she was a secretary in the New Orleans public school system and, uh, and then later for the New Orleans Urban League. Uh, and those were good jobs in those days for African-Americans. Um, but unless you were among that small minority of people whose parents owned businesses or perhaps were clergy members, that those were the opportunities that were available wide scale for people of color in the United States at the time. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're both innocent, but you're living, you know, I, I would say to the person, perhaps the unearned privilege of the past, and I'm living the uh, tragic results of, of the past. So that's a difference that I think is really important for people to, to understand. So, um, yes, it is the right thing to do, I think. That's my first thought, uh, because... You know, if you're living the results of the past, you're innocent. You didn't do it. Secondly, I think we've got to understand our past in order to move beyond some of the resentment of the government's attempts to help us as a country move beyond it. I mean, I think if people really understood uh, three things a lot of that resentment would go away because I think most people have good hearts, but they're just uninformed. We have to understand, number one, the extent of the wrong that was done. The extent of the wrong. Eh, People know about slavery, but very few people in my experience in this field really understand the specifics of the horror of slavery. Yeah, people know that Native Americans lost their land But very few people, in my experience, really understand the horror, understand the specifics of what happened in how Native Americans lost this land. Very few people understand the absolute horror, for example, um, of uh, what happened during what is called, uh, what are called the, the Indian massacres that went on for over 100 years. Very few people understand the horror of the Trail of Tears, the movement of Native Americans from the East Coast out to the West. You know, very few people know that Hispanic Americans went through a period of lynching just as African Americans did. Very few people understand what happened to Asian Americans when they first attempted in rather large numbers to come to this country, the discrimination and the harassment that they faced and the violence that they faced. So, you know, it's not to wallow in the past, but it's important to understand the past because if we don't understand it, we are likely to repeat it in some form. And I I think, tragically, we may be seeing some of that in our country today. That's a whole other show. So one, I think most people really don't know the specifics of the horrors of the past. Secondly, I don't think most people really truly understand. Most people of any group, whether you're a member of uh, a targeted group or whether you're a member of the majority group, I don't think most of us understand the impact that that history has had on individual human beings and on cultures 
how that past is still very present in some respects with both people and with cultures. And third, most people I know, again, everybody, members of targeted groups, members of dominant groups, most of us have no clue about the extent of the incredible contributions that people of disadvantaged groups have made despite the discrimination, despite the harassment, despite the retaliation that they've historically faced. Amazing contributions in science, in art, in architecture, and in every other field. So, and it's important that we understand that too. So, excuse me, those three things, the extent of the wrong, the impact of the wrongs, and the contributions that people have made, three very important things for us all to understand. When we come back from the break, we're going to continue this discussion, and I'll give you the number to call in if you have any questions or comments. Love to hear from you. Let's go to our break, and I'll see you in a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor, appropriately, to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-346-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. We're talking about the need for us all to understand social, oftentimes governmental attempts to address the present day lingering effects of past discrimination, past harassment, past retaliation against groups of people based on who they are. Now, before I go any farther, I'd I'd like to say, you know, I just uh, checked in with my engineer, the engineer on this show, great guy, uh, Aaron, and I asked Aaron, tell me, what do you think? Do you think this show sounds like a show of grievances, a show about how the man has done us wrong? Once again, this week, Lawrence talking about all the stuff that has been done to folks of color, to women, etc. Because I, I don't want it to sound that way, friends. I really don't. My intention is to educate and hopefully enlighten. At the very least, my intention is to, and my desire is to give you something to think about. You know, so that, as as Aaron said over the break, at least maybe the next time I'm in a discussion about this stuff, I'll think to myself, you know, I, I hadn't, I remember what Lauren said, and I hadn't actually thought about that before. And so I, I, I really want to learn a little bit more about that, or a lot about that, but I certainly need to think about it a bit more. That's my intention. It's, it's to educate. It's to illuminate. It's not to every week get on air and uh, give a... Yet another list of of grievances, uh, because that's not productive for any of us. So I hope you're able to hear my show in that spirit, in the spirit in which I offer it, as a learning opportunity. All right. Now, back to the subject matter. I'm I'm going to share with you, um, I'm not going to go through the history of what has been done. That is probably a year-long history course, (laughs) you know, college-level history course. Um, but I will share with you something that I think you'll be interested in and that you'll find fascinating, and that is some of the accomplishments um, of people of color. But I'm also going to speak briefly, generally, about the Heritage Months um, and about affirmative action and about reparations first. I'm going to preface all of those remarks, however, by telling those of you who may not be aware of just how painful it is when you're a member of a group for whom you know (laughs) the majority of people in society don't know anything about the history of your people. Nothing. 
And so when we don't have information, what we do as human beings, the way the human brain works is if we don't have information, we fill it in. This happens at the unconscious level. We fill in the blanks with what is oftentimes misinformation. So if I don't know anything about the contributions that, for example, Asian Americans have made to the United States, let's say, if I don't know anything about the contributions that Native Americans have made, that African Americans have made, that Hispanic Americans have made, my unconscious thought, and again, it doesn't make me a racist for thinking this, it just, you know, it's just how the brain is wired, we try to fill in the blanks, what I'm going to do unconsciously is assume, I'm going to think, well, they must not have done anything, otherwise they'd be in the history books. I mean, if they had done stuff, then they'd be in the history books. So, I guess they don't have a lot of contributions. You know, that's on an unconscious level. That's where our brains go with all of those gaps, you see. And I don't know if you can truly understand, really, unless you've experienced it. It is painful. It is painful to know that the vast majority of people out there believe that about your group that your group has accomplished nothing of of any kind of historical significance. You've contributed basically nothing to society. You are, as as some of our present-day politicians uh, refer to groups, certain groups, you're the takers. There are makers and there's takers. And your group is one of the takers. It's it's painful to know that, that your group is thought of in that way. I remember many years ago, um, I was, I guess, in what we used to refer to as junior high. I think it's called middle school these days. Um, but I remember coming home and, and watching, uh, coming home from school. It was a weekday and watching one of those after school shows for kids. And um, there were a group of kids standing up talking on the uh, playground of their school. They were middle school age kids as well, junior high school kids. And there were three white kids and one black kid and one of the white kids said to the black kid well what have your people ever contributed to society but fried chicken and grass huts and the other white kids looked at him like are you crazy why did you have to say that the black kid the look on his face these little kids were good actors the look on his face was utter and total hurt and anger and he had no emotional tools. Tools. He was a kid, so his emotions were so strong that he just lashed out by punching that kid in the face. He just punched him in the face. Well, he shouldn't have done that, obviously. Violence never accomplishes anything. Um, and my feeling is that if it were a real scenario that happened um, in real life, it's the black kid that would have been suspended or expelled from school. But... The point is that that is the level of hurt that accompanies that feeling, that knowledge, that most people don't know anything about your culture and therefore assume that it has contributed nothing historically. It hurts because the feeling is that, you, you know that the feeling is that you come from a group of deadbeats that haven't done anything, nothing in science. Nothing in agriculture, nothing in engineering, nothing in architecture. You are basically savages that 
You know, we're enslaved and now you're part of this country. It's it's painful, folks. So, what I'd like to do is just share with you very quickly a little bit about the Heritage Months and why we have them, affirmative action and why we have them, reparations, and why they've been given to at least one group in the United States, or perhaps two. Um, and then I'm going to share with you some of the contributions that people have made who are members of um, particular groups in the United States. If, however, you have any questions or any comments about anything that you're hearing, anything that I'm sharing with you today, please feel free to call. Call me. I would love to hear you. I'd love to hear your comments. I'd love to hear your questions. And the number to call is 866-472-5788. Again, that number is 866-472-5788. Give me a shout out. Love to hear from you. All right, so first with regard to Heritage Months, uh, Women's History Month, and uh, when I was a child, it was called Negro History Week, and then then much later on, it became, I think in the 70s perhaps, it became Black History Month, and uh, Native American Heritage Month, and Hispanic American Heritage Month, etc. Why do we have all of those? And, you know, why don't we have a month for European American cultures? Well, again, the answers I'm giving are very... Uh, short uh, because we don't have a lot of time on the radio uh, and so I encourage you to do more more research on these on these issues but in a nutshell we have these months because the vast majority of us if not all of us were not taught a, a lot about the history of these American groups, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, we weren't taught a lot about their history in school. So we don't know a lot about their history. Um, I, I know basically when I was growing up, I had to learn about, you know, all of the, uh, what were considered the uh, great settlers, um, you know, the uh people who set out on ships and came to the New World, as they called it, although it wasn't new at all, of course. Uh, I had to learn all about Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama and Lewis and Clark. You know, I I mean, I can go on and on, but I had to learn that stuff, and we were tested on it. I had to learn about, you know, all of the uh, great scientists, you know, um, uh, Louis and Marie Pasteur and Albert Einstein and... uh, Newton, Isaac Newton, and so many others. Uh, I had to learn about all of the great um, composers, Bach and Chopin and uh, Brahms and Beethoven. You know, this, this is the history that we, that we learned, that we were taught, all of us. And I can go on and on with every other uh, discipline. The people that we learned about were Europeans. To the Exclusion, really, of every other group, and that's not an exaggeration. And so if I asked you, for example, if I asked the average person to name five contributions to the world that came from the continent of Africa, I don't think most people could do it. If I asked you to name five contributions, significant contributions, made to the United States specifically by Asian Americans, don't think you could do it. Hispanic Americans. Don't think you could do it. Native Americans. Don't think you could do it. 
And so we have these months in order to highlight the history and the contributions of people from these groups because we're not taught it in history. The history that I learned in college, (laughs) really the textbook and uh, the course itself was called History of Western Man. And that pretty much was um, the history of the world as it was, you know, represented to us. So that's why we have those months. I mean, it's, it's, it's to get, try to get us beyond this unconscious belief that people from these groups have contributed nothing at all to the world because that leads to unconscious-ism, unconscious prejudice, you see. And the same is true for the LGBT community, for people with disabilities. Incredible contributions have been made by people in those communities and others that we just don't know about. Now, I look forward to the day when we don't need those months. I honestly look forward to the day when Black History Month and Native American Heritage Month and Hispanic American Heritage Month and Women's History Month are relics of a distant past. Why? Because those histories are taught, they're integrated into, in our case, in our country, American history. They're part of the story. We learn about it, about the history of those groups, the real history of those groups, and their contributions as part of the American story, because they truly are part of the American story. But until such time as that happens, until such time as we start teaching kids the full American story, which includes the history and the contributions of of all of those groups, those months, in my view, are necessary. Because it is the only time, for the most part, that we get that information. I think that uh, history is being taught in a much more comprehensive way than it was when I was a child. I think we're moving in the right direction. I think we've made tremendous progress, but we aren't nearly at the place that we need to be if we're truly going to give a full and a comprehensive story of uh, the United States. So hopefully that helped. That's why we have those months. Okay. Secondly, affirmative action. The question, isn't affirmative action just reverse discrimination? I mean, isn't it discrimination against European Americans? Isn't it doing the very thing that we want to get away from, i.e., giving people advantage based on their race? That's what we're trying to move away from. So isn't affirmative action going in the opposite direction of where we want to be? Valid question, my friends, valid question. So let me just provide, if I can before the break, a simple explanation. Again, do your own research, please. Now that we have the internet, oh my gosh, (laughs) what an opportunity. Uh, for us to educate ourselves. No longer do we have to get dressed and get on our bicycles if we're a kid or get on the bus or get in our car and go across town to the library to to do any research like this. Just turn on our computer, those of us who are fortunate to have computers, and do the research ourselves. So, the question, what about affirmative action? Again, I encourage you to do your own research, but here's a quick explanation. Affirmative action is our societal attempt, as I was saying, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, to help us as a nation deal with the present day lingering, presently existing effects of past discrimination. So, 
when affirmative action came to us in 1967, Executive Order 11246 was the source of it, putting my lawyer's hat on for just a second. Um, the idea was, you know what? The, the thinking, I should say, was, and I won't be able to finish this before the break, so I'll just start it and then we'll take a break and I'll come back and finish it at the other side of the break. The thinking was, well, this reality in which we live, CEOs of major corporations, all and only white men, and I mean white men, not even white women, presidents of universities, except for HBCUs, historically black universities, and, and women's colleges, all and only white men, people in government at every level, at the federal level, at the local level, at the municipal level, pretty much white men, except for the administrative staff, the clerical staff. This is not a natural state of affairs. This didn't happen on its own, that white men are at the top everywhere we look in our, in our society. All of the newscasters, uh, all of the anchor people, all the sports commentators, all of the meteorologists, all and only white men. That's the world in which I grew up. But there was a recognition starting in the late 60s, as that, was, that that was not indeed a natural state of affairs, that it was indeed the result of many, many, many years of discriminating, of discriminating, of pe- keeping other people out of those opportunities. Okay, we'll continue this discussion on the other side of the break and talk about how affirmative action was intended to address that. So, see you in a couple of minutes. We'll continue this discussion and finish up. Thanks, friends. Thanks for listening. Give me a call. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. 
Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi there, and welcome back, everybody. So before the break, we were just about to talk about affirmative action. Essentially, in a nutshell, this is going to be a very quick course. Affirmative action was meant to address that artificially created society that we all, all of us of a certain age, were born into. That society in which it was all and only white men who were at the tops of all organizations, whether it be governmental or nonprofit or corporate, uh, the, the, the CEOs of corporations, the presidents of universities, the Congress and the Senate at the, at the federal level and at the state level, for, uh, they, it was all run by white men. And there was a recognition in the late 60s that this is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. You know, just as, uh, I don't know, I'm going to try to come up with an analogy, just as it's not a naturally occurring phenomenon for there to be uh, purple dogs or, or, or green cats. This is not something that happened on its own naturally. This is the result of years and years and years, centuries indeed, of keeping other people out of discriminating against white women, against people of color, against people with disabilities, against LGBTQ people, you know, against Jewish people. This is the result of many years of discrimination. It's an artificially created reality. You know, there was, a, a, I guess, a beginning recognition that white men are equal to everybody else, not superior to everybody else. They don't have superior intelligence or morals or, or anything else. It's just that they were in control. And so affirmative action was born to try to address that artificially created reality, the reality that resulted from what was indeed many, many, many decades, indeed centuries of what we might consider to be affirmative action for white men. So uh, what the government said essentially is, listen, but for all of these years and years of discrimination, this would not be the reality the heads of organizations, corporations, the government, etc., would not exactly, of course, but generally speaking, more closely resemble the population at large. If we had had an open, equal, non-discriminatory society historically, you know, we'd have a, right now, a society that would reflect that a lot more. And so we need to start working toward that. And we need to start working toward making that the reality, i.e. having our society uh, in government, in, in employment, in education, in housing, more closely resemble the reality, society at large. We need to start working on that, one, because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's in the interest of our country. You know, there was a, a beginning recognition in the late 60s that if we keep doing what we've been doing, you know, if we keep saying, no, you can't get this job, you're black. No, you can't get this job, you're a woman. No, no Jews allowed here in this country club or in this job or in this profession. No, if we keep doing that, we're going to ultimately wind up with such a large underclass of people, people who are undereducated, underemployed, uh, politically disenfranchised, people who are essentially existing outside of the system, we're going to wind up, if we keep doing what we've been doing, 
with such a large, quote, underclass, unquote, of people in this country that we're not going to be able to make it. Our nation cannot survive this. And so in the interest of our country, we've got to start opening up the doors of opportunity so that all who can walk through will walk through. All who have the intelligence and the wherewithal generally, the, the, the work ethic um, and the ambition to, to you know, finish school, to get that high-paying uh, assembly line job, all of those who can contribute, we've got to make sure that all of those who can contribute and who want to contribute will contribute. All of those who want to can that was the recognition. It was essential for our country. So the government said, um, started off with contractors, listen, um, if you contract with the federal government and you have a, uh, again, I'm putting on my lawyer's hat, forgive me, uh, and if you have a, a contract with the federal government of $50,000 a year or more, you've got to engage in affirmative actions to try to ensure that your workforce at all levels represents, roughly speaking, represents your SMSA, your standard metropolitan statistical area, based upon the most recent census. Now, the census, of course, is taken every 10 years. And so based upon the most recent census, your standard metropolitan statistical area is going to be used to determine what your uh, percentages should be. And so the idea is, hey, if, if your standard metropolitan statistical area, based on the most recent census, says that you have, you know, let's say 80% European Americans, uh, 10% African Americans, you know, 7% uh, Hispanic Americans, 5% Asian Americans. This is not going to add up to 100, by the way, because I'm not doing the math, really. And maybe 2% uh, Native Americans. Then, roughly speaking, all things being equal your work environment should reflect those numbers at all levels, from management down to the assembly line, the custodial staff. All things being equal, by and large, your workforce should reflect those numbers, those percentages. Now, there was also the recognition that we didn't get to this point of white men being in charge everywhere overnight. So there was a a real understanding that this isn't going to change overnight. But there was a realization that we must start at least moving toward that kind of equality, having our work environments, our schools, our hospitals, etc., reflect society at large. There was the understanding that we've got to at least start moving toward that. And so the government said, I want you to show me that you've at least made a good faith effort, that you've at least used due diligence to get there. Now, if your numbers don't come back next year, uh, looking like the population at large, that's okay. We know it can't happen overnight. This was the Department of Labor, by the way, the OFCCP, the Office of Contract Compliance Programs, dealing with their contractors. Uh, They said, look, we know it's not going to change overnight, but you've got to show us that you're at least making a good faith effort to get there in your recruiting. Where do you advertise your jobs? Where do you recruit? You know, what, what kind of programs do you have to help people along, people who are already in your workforce? You know, who's getting trained, uh, who's being sent to conferences. We want you to show us that you're at least trying, because if you try earnestly, you will make progress. 
if you've shown us that you've made a good faith effort and you've been somewhat successful, great. Love to see that. If you've shown us that you've sincerely made a good faith effort, but you just have not made a lot of progress, maybe you're an engineering firm and there aren't many people of color graduating with engineering degrees, for example. We'll take that into account. But show us that you're trying. You know, if, uh, if you don't have many women in management, after making a good faith effort, maybe there aren't a lot of women with that exact qualification or, uh, you know, history of experience that you're looking for, but you've got to show us that you made the attempt. That's what the government said. That was what affirmative action was about. It was an effort to level the playing field so that everyone has an equal shot at opportunity based upon their, what I believe to be their God-given intelligence and talent And so it was never, ever, ever about reverse discrimination. First of all, there is no such thing as reverse discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination. And it comes as a surprise to many people, but the fact is that all of the Civil Rights Act, the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, the uh, Age Discrimination and Employment Act of 67, these laws also cover European Americans. So if a European-American is being discriminated against based on their race, they have every right to file complaints, to take formal action, to go to court. Sometimes people have done that, and on occasion, on quite a number of occasions actually, they've won those cases if they can prove their, their alleged facts. So there's no such thing as reverse discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination. If you're discriminating against a person because they're white, that's discrimination too. That's equally as illegal. That's also against the law. So just wanted to put that out there. (laughs) But the fact is that the um, point is that there there was never an attempt to engage in discrimination against European Americans. It was just an attempt to level the playing field. Now, sometimes when people have, if you're on a seesaw, for example, and you're in the up position, Coming to an equal balanced position means perhaps that you may come down because you're not being given the unfair advantages that you have been given in the past. But that's not discrimination. That's just leveling the field. It can feel like discrimination, though I understand that. But consider that it is bringing other people up to an equal level. It's leveling the playing field. And so that's what affirmative action was about. Never about giving people an unfair advantage or or any such thing. Now, when I've taught this in diversity courses over the years, so many people have come up to me and have said, Lauren, I never knew that. I never understood that. I have had negative feelings about affirmative action because I didn't understand. I didn't, you explained the legislative history. Nobody ever explained that to me before. And people have said to me, why aren't we taught this stuff in high school? My answer is, I don't know, but we certainly should be. Um, so yeah, my, my hope is that that little explanation has helped you understand a little bit about affirmative action. It was the right thing to do, but it was also an effort to look out for the future of our nation as well. Yeah. Now, the third thing that we need to discuss, we've discussed our heritage months as a nation. We've discussed affirmative action a little bit. 
And the third thing is reparations. I don't think we have time to really get into reparations. That's a very controversial issue and one that I don't want to start without time to finish. So I'll say one other word about affirmative action before it's time for us to wrap up. And that is that we live in a society in which housing, education, and employment are all sort of linked in a circle. Housing, education, and employment. And they're all sort of, you know, uh, interdependent. So, for example, with regard to education, it's the real estate market in communities that support the public schools. It's the real estate market. So if there's no good real estate market in a community, the schools are going to not be very good. They're probably going to be pretty crappy, in fact. And so if the schools aren't, aren't good and if children aren't getting adequate education, they're not going to be able to get adequate employment as adults because they're uneducated. And if they're not able to get adequate employment, if they're not able to be employed at a certain level, of course, they can't afford adequate housing. They can't afford housing in a neighborhood that has a certain level of real estate value. And then the cycle continues. Without the real estate value, the schools are bad. With bad schools comes bad employment. It is a vicious cycle. So the government said, let's try to burst this bubble in employment with affirmative action. The response from many was, wait a minute, I've been on this job for 15 years. Wait a minute. Look, I come first. People have to get in the back of the line. The government says, well, let's try to burst this bubble in education. In the early 70s, at least, let's bust these kids to school so that they all get the same opportunity for education, which over time will lead to more equality in employment, which will then lead to more equality in housing, which will then lead to more equality in education. Wait a minute now. I don't want my kid bust across town. No. All right, well, let's try to make some headway in housing. Hold up. You're going to ask me to have my real estate value go down because of a social experiment? Not happening. So you see, that cycle is hard to break. And we ever, wherever we tried to stick the, pe- the pin in the, in, the, in the balloon, there was an outcry. Well, there is no free lunch. Our history is painful. And trying to break that history will not be an, a non-painful process. There's a lot more we can say about that, folks. We'll have to do a part two on this, obviously, because we didn't even get to the contributions of people of color and women. Didn't even get there. So we'll see a little bit more about this, get to reparations and those contributions in our next show. It is, however, time for me to go. So once again, I hope that you've enjoyed this show. I hope that you've learned some things, that it's enlightened you in in some way, at least given you something to think about. Until next week, I'm your host, Lauren Nile. I really do thank you for listening. I appreciate your support. And uh, I hope that you have a very great, a very good week as we approach the holiday season. Take care, everybody. We'll talk again next week. So long now. Thank you for listening to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Please join your host, Lauren N. Nile, for another edition of our program next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you right here next week.